Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am super excited about our guest today. We have Ms. Barbara Bhutan, who is the Vice President of Professional Development at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, where she does pretty much everything. She oversees and coordinates professional development and continuing education, continuing medical education for hospice and palliative care providers across the country. And prior to coming to NHPCO, Ms. Bhutan worked with Hospice and Palliative Care of Louisville, which is now Hospiris in Kentucky for 23 years, where among her other activities, she developed a state-of-the-art bereavement program that served hospice families in the community, as well as staff, volunteer, and community education and support programs. So just a little bit more about her background. She holds a fellow in thanatology, which is interesting. Maybe I should ask you what thanatology is. This is our first question. A lot of people don't know what that is. Through the Association of Death Education and Counseling, a Master of Arts from the University of Louisville and has over 30 years experience in hospice care, grief and bereavement, end-of-life care education, and the development of related programs and services. So Barbara, welcome. We're delighted you're with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So first, what is a layman's definition of thanatology? What is that? Thanatology is the study of death, dying, grief, and bereavement. Wow, that sounds pretty intense. Yes, being a fellow just means that I know a lot about those things. And with all these years of working in the hospice and palliative care field, you would hope so, right? Uh, Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm sure you are a rock star at this, so we're hoping you'll share some of your insight with us. So a first question I... Uh, That's great. The first question I have here is, I mean, I always think of grief and bereavement as when someone has died and thinking about Mm -hmm. the survivors after the death. But is grief and bereavement part of the person's illness trajectory as well? Absolutely. In fact, let me just start with a couple of definitions. Um, When we talk about loss, that is... We experience loss any time something of importance changes in our lives. So with that definition, we are coping with and experiencing loss almost on a daily basis. Grief is how we respond, and we respond to loss and to change uh, physically, cognitively, emotionally, socially, spiritually. It's kind of our internal and personal reaction and response to loss. Um, bereavement is um, when what happens when someone dies and what we experience is sort of the state of bereavement or the period of bereavement. And then just to throw one other definition in, mourning is really uh, how a community or society grieves. It's sort of the external expressions of grief and bereavement as opposed to our internal own personal experience. Wow, if that makes I didn't sense. realize there are so many different so shades many of gray in this field. Yes. And so, you know, anytime something important changes that we experience loss. And some, you know, we think of those as negative, but there could be positive losses as well. Mm-hmm. Negative losses are things like death, or divorce, maybe the loss of a job or a position, um, shattered dreams, empty nests when your children grow up and leave home. Mm-hmm. But positive losses are th- maybe things like retirement. Maybe you have changes in caregiving responsibilities, reaching a goal, realizing a dream moving to a new location, even though all of those things can be exciting, 
they also carry a component of loss with them because there is a change. Mm. So the one I like to recall was when I finished graduate school many, many years ago. And I had distinguished myself in my university. I was a teaching assistant. I knew everyone. I knew the campus. I knew the professors. And then I graduated, which is an achievement and an accomplishment. However, Mm -hmm. you go out into the world, and it's like, now what am I? And all of that identity as being a student, as being a teaching assistant, was gone. And so even though it was the realization of a dream and a goal to have that achievement, there was a loss component to it because it was a significant change in my life, and it required me to rebuild my life Mm -hmm. and to rebuild my identity, if that makes sense. It does. So if you go then and look at illness, when we talk about illness, people coping with illness are dealing with a variety of losses and a variety of changes. They are losing their health. They perhaps are losing how they spend their time. Maybe they can't work like they used to. Maybe they can't do their leisure activities. They can't participate in things that used to bring them pleasure. They lose a lot of independence. They lose control, perhaps over their life, over their health, over their bodily functions. Two really quick examples. I feel like I have a lot of people in my life right now that are coping with illness. My uh, best friend's husband, John, is coping with throat cancer and had a recent um, surgery to remove the cancer and lost his ability to eat. He had an NG tube for a couple of weeks and is now just beginning to eat foods with substance. He was excited the other day that he was going to have some soup that has had chunks, as he said it, in it. But, so, you know, he was used to pureed food. He went from, you know, complete healthy person to person with throat cancer to a person who could no longer eat. Mm. So those were a lot of changes and a lot of losses he experienced. On the other hand, I have a friend, Kathy, who is coping with breast cancer, and next week will um, have a mastectomy. And she and I were talking just yesterday. This is a perfect example. She works in theater. She's a competent, independent woman. And we, um, our conversation veered into how difficult this was. She said, I've had a breast for the entirety of my life, and I'm getting ready to lose that breast. Mm. And, um, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know what to expect. All of those are losses that she's experiencing, and they are accompanied by grief. And yeah. probably the most important loss that we discussed was uh, that she is losing, she doesn't have competence right now. She's used to being a competent person who manages her life, who manages her career, and in this illness, she has lost all competence and is an incompetent person. And for someone who values competence, Competence is a very high value. That's sure. a pretty huge loss. I can so imagine. how does that make sense? It does make sense. So I hear this term anticipatory grief. Does that mm-hmm. apply to both patients and families who have a loved one who's seriously ill? Well, generally it has traditionally applied to families. And mm-hmm. anticipatory loss or anticipatory grief it has to do with what is happening in that illness trajectory to a loved one and how we 
begin to expect and anticipate what's going to happen. And particularly if that person's illness is going to end in their death, Mm -hmm. kind of, if you will, practicing what's going to happen, begin to visualize what's going to happen when that person dies. And all of the changes and losses that are accompanying that illness. So you begin to practice, if you will, your grief. You begin to imagine what life is going to be like without that person and all of the roles and responsibilities you're playing. You know, the loss of the role of a caregiver when someone dies is a loss right? Mm -hmm. Because you've kind of defined yourself, you've spent your time that way, you put a lot of energy into being a good caregiver, and particularly in a spousal relationship. If one of the spouses dies, then the other person doesn't know who they are anymore, particularly if they've been a caregiver for a number of years. And I would imagine that if it was a very arduous caregiving role, the relief from that responsibility often could even make you feel guilty for being relieved. Pretty complicated stuff. It is complicated. So you have relief as well as loss. Yeah. And then you feel bad that you feel relieved because what am I what do I mean? What am I saying about that? I have another friend whose mother is elderly and um she keeps sort of getting close to the end of her life, and then she rallies. And Mm -hmm. sort of getting close to the end of her life, and then she rallies. She's been doing this for a couple of years. Mm. And every time it gets sort of close to what appears to be the end of her life, the family is like, do we go now? Do we not go now? What do we do? Oh, we wish she would just die so she could have some peace. And then, of course, what accompanies that is, oh, my gosh, how could we say that? How could we wish that? And their wish is for her peace, but still, you get caught up in all of the thoughts and feelings. And What kind of a terrible person am I to wish that her life would be ended, right? Yes, that is complicated. So you've been talking about these stages of grief, and and I know there's lots of theories, and I always think of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the stages, and I'm a very organized OCD kind of person, so it seems to me like there are rules, and you should march through these stages and don't ever look back, but I suspect that's not the case. So could you share a little bit about how some of these theories differ uh, amongst the the different theories and what's current and what are our understandings today of grief and bereavement? Yeah, all of that is very complicated, and you're right. And, And everyone who goes through grief and loss and bereavement wishes it was as easy as first I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm going to progress through this naturally and then I'm going to be done. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. It, uh, you know, the way we respond to grief and loss is, is it generally normal and very healthy. It is individual and unique, very multifaceted and ebbs and flows, but it doesn't progress in neat steps and order. So for your OCD tendencies, being in the midst of grief and loss would be pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and the experience of grief and loss occurs over a long period of time, much longer than society expects and much longer most of the time than we expect because we have mm-hmm. expectations, gosh, I should be doing better now than I, I feel like I am. But in terms of perspectives and theories, you're right, there are a boatload of theories about grief. And um, Kubler-Ross was one 
um, that was used often to describe the bereavement, i.e. after death process, but really her work was focused on before death, the dying person's experience. And even though she said this process does not fold in predictable steps or stages, most of the time people think of that as a progression mm-hmm. of denial, anger, or bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And then, woo, we reach the top of the mountain, all is well. But it doesn't necessarily work that way. So there, Kubler-Ross's work, and even Freud had ideas about grief and bereavement and wrote about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're sort of the beginnings of our thinking about and really paying attention to grief and loss. More contemporary theories are Bill Warden, who... Um, mm-hmm developed tasks of mourning. And a lot of hospice bereavement programs use Warden's work. It is really great work, and it's also easy for people in bereavement to understand. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the theories about grief and bereavement, the stages or states of grief, have to it almost make it sound as if there's something that happens to us. We go through these states or these stages, whereas mm-hmm. Warden's tasks of bereavement really give us activity or actions that we can do. It helps us to feel more like we're in control, if you will, of Mm -hmm. our grief and loss. So warden's tasks are first to accept the reality of the loss, secondly, to process the pain of grief, thirdly, and this is the biggest one, it takes people the most amount of time to adjust to an environment in which the deceased is missing. Mm. And then fourth, to find an enduring connection with the deceased. As you're sort of creating this new identity, embarking on a new life, you are developing, creating a new relationship. Mm -hmm. When Freud did his work way, way back in the day, he came up with an idea that what we have to do in our grief is um, a process called decatexis. He said between people there's energy. There's an exchange of energy in relationship. And when a person dies, that energy exchange is cut off. And our task, he said, is to pull the energy back into ourselves and to be severed from that relationship. Fast forward to current day, another one of the theories, if you will, is about continuing bonds. Mm -hmm. We don't pull all of our energy back. We have a relationship. It becomes a relationship of memory versus a relationship in the physical world, but Mm -hmm. it's still a relationship. The emotional attachment continues, although it was considered to be really pathological and not a good thing back in Freud's day. Mm -hmm. The continuing attachment is accepted now. And the research shows that healthy, it's, it, that, that's a healthy thing when the attachments, bonds are secure and that serves us very well to think about those relationships and continue to make those people that have been lost in our lives part of our daily lives. And uh-huh. we all have experiences and rituals and activities that we do that bring those people back into or keep those people in our lives, if you will. Mm-hmm. I just read a commentary written by a bereavement counselor at a local hospice here in Maryland, and he, his mother has had died this past year, and he said that his family chose to uh, take one ritual to use every year during the holidays to honor her memory. Do you think that's a good way to right. go? Absolutely, very much. To 
either identify something that has been part of a tradition in the past or to create a new tradition. In Mm -hmm. my own family, when I began to lose family members at Thanksgiving, at our Thanksgiving table, we would light a specific candle that was um, symbolic of a specific individual. Mm -hmm. And it, it now has progressed as life continues to we have too many candles that won't Uh fit on our dining table so we have um, little votive candles that we light and we say the name of the people and we surround the table with these candles as we have our dinner it's like they're still with us they're still a part of this Mm -hmm. and it's it's really important and meaningful to Bring them to the table, if you will, to recall sure. that they're still part of this family. So those kinds yeah. of activities can be very helpful. Now, you you have described all these theories, which sounds pretty complicated to me, but then I also hear about complicated grieving or complicated grief. What is that, and how is it different from what you described, and how can we as hospice and palliative care practitioners recognize it? Well, it's really hard to recognize, and all of the there are a lot of differing thoughts and like a lot of conflict, I would say, in the field of bereavement about what complicated grief is. And you know, back in the past, we thought of um, complicated grief. Uh, it, it had a lot of different names: unresolved, chronic, pathological, and formerly it was also associated with very specific types of loss. Mm-hmm. For example, the loss of a child, the uh, death that occurs by murder, those kinds of things. But now that's not the current understanding. There are new definitions, ideas, and strategies, I think, and lots of new terminology, complicated bereavement, traumatic bereavement. There's another prolonged grief disorder, or this one, my favorite, persistent complex bereavement-related disorder. Good so, um, And all of these people that have come up with them have different ideas, although there's some components that are, um, you know, consistent across them. And in a nutshell, I would say it has to do with the amount of time that has occurred since a death and the intensity of the loss experience, the grief experience. There Mm -hmm. are some risk, risk factors, some red flags that might indicate that in particular circumstances, people are likely to do more poorly than others in coping with loss. Things like um, if uh, it's a spousal loss or the death of a child, especially the mother Mm -hmm. may experience more difficult grief. If the relationship or the attachment in the relationship has been one of anxiety or there's avoidant attachment or insecure attachment, if there's a lack of social support, um, if there's a lot of dependency in the relationship, that can be a difficulty after death occurs. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of the red flags. That doesn't mean grief is going to be complicated, but it means there, there might be some problems. And basically, the, the definitions that are being put forward now and that are being looked at seriously for a diagnosis, quote unquote, of complicated bereavement or any of those other fancy terms that I mentioned, have some symptoms that are reminiscent of uh, PTSD, lots of anxiety, and the criteria for that um, diagnosis, if you will, is that death has occurred at least 
maybe 12 months before, 6 to 12 months. Some theorists are promoting 6 months, some are promoting 12. There's a lot of separation distress on a daily basis. There's um, good old British terminology, yearning and pining. That came (laughs) from some early grief theorists, but intense sorrow and emotional pain. A lot of preoccupation with the person that died. Preoccupation Mm -hmm. with circumstances, what happened at the time of death. In the early stages of grief, those are very, very normal. It's mm-hmm. when you have this time factor where it doesn't change over mm-hmm. a long period of time that is a concern. And if the intensity is really high, there's also a reactive distress. There's like difficulty even accepting that the death occurred. A person for a prolonged period of time may seem to be in those early stages of shock and numbness and denial. This really mm-hmm. didn't happen. They can't remember anything positive about the person. Or Mm -hmm. there's a social or identity disruption. And what makes this what makes complicated bereavement so complicated is that ma- the majority of these criteria are very normal early mm-hmm. in the early stages of bereavement, but they become less so the longer time has occurred. And right when the intensity doesn't decrease. So what you expect to happen over time in normal, quote-unquote, grief, if, that, if there's any such thing, is that the marked intensity and distress becomes lessened over time. Mm-hmm. So people find a way to return to some degree of equilibrium in their life. That's got to be difficult, though, to pick up. Like I sit in hospice team meeting, and first we do the deaths, and I hear the nurse case manager say to our bereavement coordinator, I anticipate normal grieving. How can they tell at that point that they anticipate normal grieving? And then, you know, every time you say, oh, you should be getting over this by now, it's starting to look a little complicated here, Mm -hmm. the answer is always everybody grieves in their own way. So how do you reconcile all that? That's why it's so complicated, if you will, and why there's so much conflict within the field about what is complicated grief and when is it complicated and when is it not. And there are a lot of theorists and practitioners who are working really hard on this and trying to get it as clear as it can be. And Mm -hmm. I would assume that that person in a team meeting who is saying, I expect normal grief, maybe is aware that none of those risk factors are, Mm -hmm. are present. You know, this is a person who's socially very connected, very active mm-hmm. in their environment or their community, has a lot of friends, has a lot of family support, has meaningful life activities. Um, but, you know, it's not something that you can just predict. You have to let it unfold over time mm-hmm. and watch it. And that's why at the time of death or immediately after, you're not likely to know whether a person is going to be in a complicated grief situation six to 12 months down the road because it can look really bad early on in grief. People often think they're going crazy, they have lost their mind. And um, one of the most important things I think that practitioners and students in this program can do is learn about grief and bereavement, learn about what's normal, and help people understand and learn that this is what grief looks like. And oftentimes when I've talked to people, they'll say, this is happening or that's happening or I'm doing this or I'm thinking this or I'm feeling this. And I'll say, you know what that's called? What? What? It's called grief. That's just part and parcel of the experience. So when a hospice follows a bereaved individual for 13 months, would they be likely to pick up 
on grief that's become become complicated, do you think? Yes, I think they would know over time. They would expect to see a natural progression of a person having a period of extreme disequilibrium and not knowing who they are, what they're about, what they need to do, and then starting to sort of put their life back together. Mm -hmm. Your question reminds me of a a woman many years ago we had in a bereavement program who was in a hospice situation. Her husband had died very suddenly, had a massive heart attack, and just died on a day that he was doing some volunteer work at his church. And, oh, Maybe three, four, five, six months later, she was in a bereavement group and was talking, and she was really angry that he had died. Mm -hmm. And spring was coming, and she had to do yard work, and that was his job, and why wasn't he there? She didn't know how to ride their riding lawnmower, and, you know, she was just completely fed up with the whole thing. And then two or three weeks later, she came into group, and she said, well, I cut the grass. Mm -hmm. And it was like, all right. She's going to be okay mm-hmm. because, and, and I said, that, well, congratulations. She said, I didn't like it. And I said, well, <laughs> you don't have to like it. The fact is you figured it out. And, you know, all of the many years that I've worked in bereavement, I came to believe that there's a decision point. There becomes a point in time, and it's going to be different for everyone. It's not necessarily conscious, but it's, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure my life out. I'm going to figure out who I am. I'm going to figure out how I go forward, or I'm not. And it's the people that don't make that decision point that are going to be at risk. So as hospice and palliative care providers, how do we provide good self-care and our own resilience when working with bereaved individuals? Because it seems to me it could suck the life right out of you. It can absolutely suck the life right out of you. And, you know, the people that are working in this field are human beings with human reactions. And generally you get involved in this field because you're a caring person and you want to help others, which makes you vulnerable too. So Mm -hmm. not only are you faced with all of these people you're working with who are coping with profound loss and grief in their lives, we have our own histories of loss and grief too, Mm -hmm. our own experiences. And sometimes those get kicked up when we're working with patients and families and we have to be aware we have to be self-aware enough that we know when our own histories are kicking up and might be influencing uh, how we are being helpful or conversely not helpful and I think what we have to do is practice radical self-care whatever Mm -hmm. that means for you Figure out, you know, for some people it's something very active. For other people it's very meditative or something that's restorative. Mm-hmm. Something, whether it's with, sometimes it's with people, for some of us, others, it's don't put anybody around me. Let me have my own quiet time. Mm-hmm. But I think the important thing is to know that you're going to be affected, expect that you're going to be affected. Some situations, some people, some relationships will be more difficult than others. Mm-hmm. And practice this radical self-care. There is a lot of concern in this field about compassion fatigue and burnout. There are mm-hmm. real liabilities for individuals in working in this field. And a lot, there's a lot of research that um, shows, in, it, particularly focused on physicians, that it's not good. And it's, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to guard against that and take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes people in this field 
pride themselves on being good helpers, want mm-hmm. to be helpers, but sometimes we we are more focused on others and negate our own needs. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what happens when you're a healthcare provider? You quote should know better because we're all enlightened. But you've had a personal loss. Like I was just telling you the story about how I was wrapping Christmas presents this past weekend, and I reached for a gift bag because we recycle them in my family, and it said to mom from Lynn, and my mom died this past May, and that was like standing with my back to the ocean, and a ten foot wave crashed over me. I did not see that coming. Uh, well, and that is part of how grief unfolds. It just hits us and can drop us to our knees when we least expect it. I've uh, heard people talk about going to the grocery store. You're just kind of, okay, I'm having an okay day. I'm going to go get my groceries for the week. You walk down an aisle and you just happen to look over and see your spouse's favorite food and Mm -hmm. it just completely takes you off track it just is what happens and i think what we have to do when that happens is go okay there it is again not say Mm -hmm. oh my gosh something's wrong with you that you're feeling that way it's very normal and in your situation you are reaching the first christmas and that is pretty loaded holiday times are so difficult when we are missing someone that has been part Part of our lives on an ongoing basis and I think we have to find rituals and practices to help us with those those times yeah. when my own mother died I um, the first Christmas I think I had was putting away decorations and I came across um, some stationery. It was Christmas stationery. So I sat down and wrote her a letter. It was probably three pages long. I put it in an envelope, put it in with the Christmas decorations, and then every year I got it back out. I read what I wrote the year before. I would write a new letter on this, you know, just continuing. For And I don't think I have done it now for a couple of years. I haven't found that yet in my Christmas decorations, uh-huh. but it really helped me. So you just have to look at, at things that will be helpful, at ways that we can continue to maintain those relationships and translate them into a different kind of relationship. But that letter, it really helped me to get through those tough times. That's great. Thank you. As we close, Barbara, anything new and exciting on the horizon for NHPCO and upcoming cool programming you want to share with the group? Well, you know, NHPCO has a podcast that is happening um, twice a month, too, mainly on regulatory-related topics. That will continue into the new year. We're Mm -hmm. planning a virtual conference for the summer that will be on transitions in care, all of the different types of transitions that people will go through throughout their illness Mm -hmm. and how to help people navigate and manage those, how we can do a a better job, as well as gearing up for our management and leadership conference and um, our fall interdisciplinary conference, which will be in New Orleans. And Mm -hmm. I'm happy that you're going to be there, I hope, right? Well, it's New Orleans. I have to be there. Are you kidding? That's right. (laughs) That's right. God love a good beignet. Well, I know that all of uh, Sue Practice and Hospice and Palliative Care are very appreciative of NHPCO's efforts, not only in education, but in advocacy and keeping everyone informed and trying to swim the political stream that, boy, that can be uh, pretty challenging, uh, I'm sure. So thank you for, A, doing this podcast for us personally, as well as the organization's efforts. So I would uh, like... Oh, you're certainly welcome. Thank you. I'd like to thank Ms. Bhutan, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining in for our palliative care 
chat podcast. I do want to point out that part of our online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program does include coursework in thanatology, either as a certificate or as part of the Master's program. Uh, for more information about our program or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.